We're engaged in a teaching series for nine weeks long from the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in a small city called Colossae. Opening your Bibles to the book of Colossians would be a great place to begin. We've made an insert available to you, a study sheet available in the bulletin. You can make use of that. We've noticed in this letter there's a repetition of an interesting word. It's the word mystery. The Greek word mystorion simply means things hidden, held secret. Now, you do know the most important part of a secret, right? It's the revelation part. <laughs> it's when you discover what's being held under wraps. We want to know the secret. People long for information. We want to be able to gather what's out there. We want to know. Don't be keeping no secrets from me, man. When Paul uses the word mystery, he actually identifies that his entire ministry, his life, is all about informing people, revealing the secret. We're in chapter 1, verse 25, and here's what the text says. He said, I have become its servant. He's been talking about the church. I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. But now, it is disclosed to the Lord's people. Paul is all about letting people in on information that was brand new. And when it comes to the things of God, he would prefer not to leave people scratching their heads. Mystery. There's probably a few things that we need to say regarding the mystery of God. First, God has always had some secrets. Some things he will only be the one who knows. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. It's where our intelligence ends and God's actually begins. Fact is, he's smarter than you. He's way smarter than me. He knows more. He gets it. He has full understanding. And the reason he does not inform us of some of his secrets is, quite frankly, we don't, we don't have the capacity to grasp it. You ever tried to inform a young child about a concept that they do not have the ability to understand? Like, Daddy, where, where did Grandma go when she died? Or, well, Mommy, where do babies come from? Our four-year-old grandson in Iowa informed me over the phone recently that the new baby growing in his mommy's tummy was big as an avocado, he said. I'm imagining what he's really thinking about that. Is he, is he imagining his mommy bringing home a blanket, an infant blanket? Inside he finds this green, wrinkly thing. Maybe he's thinking we kind of stirred up with salad and Italian dressing. I'm not sure what his mind is going. He's four years old. He just doesn't have the capacity. But you as a parent, you do your best to quiet the curiosity. But you know that child has no handles, no experiential grasp in order to be able to understand. They lack the capacity to process an answer. The larger point is God knows stuff. But you and I are never going to be able to know. It's a capacity issue. Second, God has some secrets that he chooses to reveal to special people all throughout history. Psalm 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that hear him. Proverbs 3, 32, his secret is with the righteous. There are some things that he reveals only to special people. Who are the special people? Well, they're the righteous, 
They're the ones who believe in God. They're the ones whom the Holy Spirit dwells in. They're the, the children of God. They sometimes have access to special knowledge, clarity, understanding about life and eternity, about purpose, about human design and reason. Their faith and their longing to know God, their hunger to know Him, seems to provide access to a special knowledge, awareness, keen. Yes, there we go. He reveals some stuff to special people. Third, there are some secrets that God hid from everybody in the past, but now he has revealed them to the saints of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when you see the word mystery in the New Testament, you, you know it frequently means what he describes in verse 26. We read it already. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. He's talking about the Old Testament time period. All those generations of the past centuries. It's been hidden from them. It has now been disclosed to the Lord's people. God became so much less mysterious when he adorned himself in human skin. He ate our food, he drank our water, he sat at our table, we had these conversations. God, through Jesus, erased so much of the mystery, so much of the secret. And the New Testament is a record of God opening the book on himself. Mystery revealed, oh, that's what God looks like, Jesus, the sacred secret. Pastor Brian presented in this, this equation as he organized this particular series. He, he pointed up to the priority, the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Full and complete revelation of God the Father. If there is one thing that you have to learn when you walk this planet, it is not economics, it's not business, it's not medicine, not sociology, government, debate, politics, sports, history. There is one supreme centerpiece around which and through whom the rest of the universe makes sense, you have access to absolutely no wisdom at all until you learn Christ. Let me make a bold statement. A highly educated PhD who does not know Jesus is merely a studied fool. Hey, be careful now. He's learned it in some small facet of creation, yet he does not know the author behind that which has captured and fascinated his mind. He has information about a million things, but all of them secondary to the primary, central thing, Jesus. Wait a minute, that's a pretty aggressive statement, Pastor. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now that's a pretty aggressive statement. I want to play out the truth of this particular section of the Colossian letter, but first a little homework and in hopes that we could draw out the relevance of these words. I want to start with some geography tonight. Let's begin here at ACC. That's where you are now. You can come on uh, the evening service and get a parking place, or you can come on that day, whatever it is. You know there's plenty of places to park. You can't come in the morning anymore. You get a place to park. But I'm glad you're here tonight. We're going to begin right there. 1635 Old Ranch Road, corner of Voyager in Old Ranch, northern Colorado Springs. We start right there. We're going to pull back from that. Click on to the next slide, and we're going to come back heading eastward across the United States. 
went all the way out into the Atlantic, far across to the distant shores and into the Mediterranean. And we'll pause there for just a moment so you can get your bearings straight. There's Italy, and to the east of Italy is Greece, and farther east to the right is the nation of Turkey. We're going to click again, and we'll hone in on Turkey a little bit. We'll zoom down to uh, just a place of farmland. It's a, it's a spot that's north of the current city of Honaz. But it's, it's orchards and pastured and agriculture. And there you will find underneath the soil the ruins of a place called Colossi. It's a city not there anymore. Actually, there was, a, there was an earthquake that came through just a few years after the letter that we are studying now devastated the city. It's a long story about them trying to rebuild it and not getting it done. The point of the matter is it's gone. It's not there anymore. And it's not been rebuilt. Well, I'm going to take the current geography that you see there and transpose the same space to the first century time period, and it would look something like this. In the red rectangle is the city of Ephesus on the coast. It was a prominent city. It's where the Apostle Paul spent two years establishing a church. That church was also served by a man by the name of Timothy. Later in the first century, that church was served by the Apostle John. Boy, there's some pretty good pastors, right? Paul and then Timothy and then the Apostle John. I want to be a part of that church. It was an influential church. I've drawn some lines to the other cities where the churches were started because of the great work in Ephesus. To the north, there's Smyrna and then Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Do you recognize that list of churches? Well, those are the famous churches that are talked about in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, letters that Jesus wrote to the significant churches there in the Lycus Valley. He had a message to them. All of those famous churches, you follow them around the cane hook. And down at the bottom is the southern city of Laodicea. And just a few miles away from Laodicea is this town of Colossae. Which makes me wonder, when Jesus wrote these letters to the famous churches, why didn't Colossae make the cut? <laughs> Don't show up. Maybe it was that earthquake thing. Maybe the church was gone and the city was almost gone by that time. I'm not really sure. But i got to tell you, while I'm staring at the geography, there are some questions that begin to surface. Paul mentions in this letter that he does not know these people. Colossae is about 100 miles from Ephesus. He said he did not know them. Chapter 2 and verse 1. So that means somebody else started this church. Paul's letters are often written to people that he's come to know and have relationship with. And so he provides them love and encouragement because he has some, some attachment, some shepherding over their life. But for some reason, he wrote this letter to a group of people he does not know. Which makes me wonder, what prompts the letter? Here's another question drawn from the geography. At the time of the writing, Paul is not in Ephesus any longer, but he's actually in Rome. 1,200 miles away. So why does Paul make the effort to write a letter to people he doesn't know who are months distance away by ship and by land and travel? The geography presents some questions. From the geography, we turn to the personalities in order to look for pieces to the puzzle. And there enters a young leader by the name of Epaphras. He's a man who apparently converted to Christianity during Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. And he started this church in Colossae, chapter 1, verse 7. It's been going for a few years. And for some reason, Epaphras decides that he needs to go to Rome to visit Paul, to seek some advice. 
He tells Paul about what, what's happening in Colossae. And in response to his Paphros presence and information, Paul pens this letter. And to others, as a matter of fact, one to Philemon. Philemon was a prominent member of the church in Colossae. My guess is that the church actually met in his residence, in his home. Can't prove that, but I'm guessing that to be the case. A second letter he also wrote to the people of Laodicea, just up the road a few miles. For chapter 4 and verse 16 in the Colossian letter says this. He gives them this instruction. After this letter, the Colossian letter, has been read to your people in Colossae, I want you to read it also to the people in Laodicea. And then he said, see that you in turn read their letter in your church in Colossae. Paul wrote three letters here. One to Colossae, one to Philemon, one to the church at Laodicea. He wrote those three letters. He put those letters on the person of Epaphras, who returns 1,200 plus miles to the city of Colossae, ready to address whatever situation was there that he has spurred these events in the first place. So here's my question. What in the world is going on in Colossae? <laughs> uh, to spur uh, the magnitude of this event, even the panic of Epaphras, that he would travel 2,500 miles round trip over several months in search of advice from the only guy who could solve the issue that's churning in his guts. What is going on in Colossae? There must have been some heavy issue Scholars refer to it as the Colossian heresy. Heresy is simply a word that means against doctrine or, or false teaching. Why would Epaphras, their teacher, be so concerned about false teaching? I mean, people think weird stuff all the time. People have conversations about obnoxious and annoying ideas. They're happening every single day. Well, it was because good people were actually believing it being absorbed in it, organizing their lives and behaviors around it. False teaching often is a, a silent killer, like a noxious gas. It, it's not visible yet. It can be very deadly. And Epaphras is the spiritual leader of these people. He was panicked on their behalf, panicked enough to take a 2,500-mile 2, round-trip journey in search of some help. Let me see if I can illustrate his burden. You are the parent of a 15-year-old boy or girl. Over the course of the summer, you've noticed some disconcerting changes in your teen. They've been hanging around some different kids. They come home with some ideas that are not a part of your family reality. There's a, an attitude change, a detachment, a look of doubt and suspicion. They don't look you in the eyes anymore. I mean, this teen parent thing is it's pretty awkward as it is, but you know this is different. Something's going on. Is there a parent in the room who would just shrug their shoulders and ignore the pending crisis? Any parent who loves their child is about to get on their horse and they're going to ride this thing until they can figure out what's going on. It may not be that a parent can figure out the strange things that are happening this summer, but I'll tell you this. A loving parent is going to do everything they can to help their teen through this odd season. To notice, to clarify, to, to confront thinking that rests the foundation of risky behavior. I mean, choices, choices all come with a price tag. Is there any parent in the room who's gone to bed at night sick to their stomach, just churning because you're watching a child being dramatically influenced by lies? 
They're oblivious to the danger. They're toying with the risk. Lies that somewhere soon are going to bring a great deal of pain or maybe even complete destruction. No loving parent sits on his hands when a black stream is attempting to sweep your child away into a muddy current. No way! If you're a parent who loves your child, no way. Epaphras, he's watching people that he loves. He observes their confusion, their, their broken thinking, and he's going to do everything he can to parent these children in the faith. He's watching good people being slowly driven to a dangerous place by social lies, common lies, lies that are, an awful lot of people have accepted as the norm and the routine, lies that swell and fester under the surface until one day you notice that the whole experience is infected. Our family, our church, are slowly being tainted and poisoned and drugged and polluted at risk. Here's the heresy of keeping Epaphras up at night. The troubled teaching that was intruding on good people's lives. The issue that had him running to Rome in, in a state of panic. He, we might call it syncretism. It certainly was a part of key philosophies of Gnosticism in the first and second centuries. Don't get put off by that fat word. Syncretism is simply a word that means to blend. It's an attempt to achieve a superior realm of position or knowledge through this particular tactic. To gather a collection of ideas from many realms of philosophy and, and, and thought and religion and practice and culture. So the general ethic behind it is, is promoted is this. Every idea has credibility. Every philosophy should be given its due. Every promotion should be accepted and allowed and appreciated. Every thought is right from its own perspective. That is syncretism. It is to, to blend in a manner that allows all things, all ideas, all notions, all beliefs to be rendered as not only valuable, but right. At first, that sounds, that sounds very modern, highly contemporary. Can't we all just get along? And the way to get along is to simply blend every thought, imagination, idea into a unified pool. Doesn't that sound noble? At base, it is such an asinine assumption. For only a brief exercise of comparison would alert one to the reality that ideas being called into union are actually diametrically opposed to one another. You're familiar with the coexist movement, perhaps? It's a charity established in 2006 to promote a better understanding between Jews and Christians and Muslims. This is how they describe their purpose. Through the projects and programs which we support, we hope to help people of these faiths improve their relations, above all with each other, but also with different faiths and those with with those of no faith. Doesn't that sound noble? The movement quickly expanded to include every form of faith, attempting to advance the idea that, that all are legitimate, all are valued, all are good, all are needed. Can't we all just get along? The idea runs parallel to the social mantras that are being required. The moral driving ethic of our culture is blend with approval. Every family design is good. 
Every sexual preference should be pursued. Every life quest is legitimate. Every idea, no matter its purpose, is to be protected, respected, valued, and approved. That's the thinking. To blend in a manner that all things are valued, all things are allowed, all things are promoted. It's kind of catchy, really. <laughs> it is. One of the greatest lies of our culture is that you cannot value a person unless you both respect and promote their individual ideas or preferences. To restrain their uniqueness in any way is to disrespect and even harm them. I'm telling you it sounds so very noble, but it is a terrible lie. That in fact is a most devaluing, devaluing human exercise because it encourages people to live outside the truth. The most loving thing you can do for someone is tell them the truth. Carefully, yes, lovingly, for sure, compassionately, absolutely, but point people to the truth. Epaphras is in panic. Good people. Christian people were beginning to lean into lies. Good families were being twisted by culture, dismantled by teachings that were destined to destroy them. And when Paul hears about the teaching, about the lies going on in the city of Colossae, he grabs his pen and he starts to scribble. His purpose in the letter is to announce that you cannot know anything about life, about wisdom, about knowledge, until you know the centerpiece of life, the single focal foundation of every facet of human experience. This is not about widening to gather to the edges of the extreme. This is about focus. Concentrate on the centerpiece. You heard that in chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the stuff that's invisible, stuff you can't see, stuff you can. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, every level of experience and authority is under his design. All things were created through him and for him. On to verse 17. He was before all things, before anything was even hatched to begin with. He was there. In him all things hold together. He is some strange supernatural glue that embraces, holds it all tight. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the very beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead into eternity, to resurrected, never to die again. First one, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, every part of the fullness of God in his complete form was invested, poured into him. God was well pleased to dwell there and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is denying, denying, uh, demarking for us that the starting point that offers sense to life, wisdom and knowledge can only be found when it's born in the person of Jesus. There's nothing of value until you know him. Nothing lasts without driving it through the lens of Christ. Nothing. Let's get specific. To study medicine without a base comprehension of the creator would be confused practice. A doctor worth his salt is not just structure and technique and systems and diagnostics, but it's the, the whole person, body, mind, and spirit under divine design. 
Through the lens of Christ, medicine becomes an amazing richness to mankind. To pursue business and economics without learning the posture of stewardship and the source of all blessing, it would leave a person driven to, to selfishness and greed. To attempt fatherhood through, through the model of Christ is to learn a model that can actually shape the next generation with, with purpose, with meaning, godly design. Instead of raising another batch of kids selfish enough in a wealthy culture to be consumed by only pursuing the power of me. Or worse yet, kids who have believed the lie that you have to expand into every model and every pursuit and stretch to the edges to engage. The purpose of life is to pursue the right thing, the central thing. The purpose of life is not to chase the many things. The purpose of life is to chase the central thing. View life through the centerpiece. To select a vocation or a college to attend or, or a location to form life should be viewed through the lens of Jesus. Who pays attention to things like, like purpose and influence and ministry and impact rather than looking for a simple spot where the sun only shines, where I don't have to work too hard, where I can make a lot of money and retire early, exerting not much effort from this beach chair. But the Lord uses amazing gifts and abilities that he has given to us for a far deeper purpose than what college and what job and what address. See everything through the eyes of Jesus. View life through the centerpiece. From life, the form life from the author's perspective, that's the great mystery of God. Christ is the center of it all. To blend a collection of the worst is a recipe for the lousy. This is about focus. To pay attention to what and who is most important. If you believe that getting ahead in life is all about widening your perspective, you couldn't be more wrong. This is what Paul's talking about. Don't attempt to blend every raunchy thing in life under the false idea that you're somehow going to produce rose gardens. Blend is not the answer. Blend is the crisis. <laughs> Focus on the truth. Wisdom is not widening your mind to everything. Wisdom is finding the right thing in the crowd of many, not allowing the many to distract or distort. Paul is drawing Christian people back to Christ. Christ is everything you do. To the text, it's verse 26. Uh, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature, solid people, steadfast, fixed, stable people. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Chapter 2, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all those who have not met me personally. My goal, Paul says, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that 
Nobody would deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Paul is really talking about Christians that have some conviction. We need Christians today who can go out into the world and say with confidence, this is the truth. This is what God has done in my life. And I am rich. The kind of riches that he has given me, I have been given great blessing because of Christ. Absolute security and confidence in him. Those are the kinds of Christians that make a dent in the social context. We need some convictions. Verse 5. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined and how firm your faith in Christ is. Two words Paul uses there, both of military background. First is this word discipline. It's the march in step, lined up perfectly in both directions. It takes practice to do such things. People of discipline. The next word he uses to be firm in your faith is the Greek word stereoma. It simply means to, to hold your place when the battle gets heavy. Conviction. It's holding your ground when the cannons make lots of noise. When the enemy presses, you lean into the presence of Jesus, and there the mystery of God unfolds. Have you ever noticed that? It's not until you're in the thick of the battle and you lean into Christ that the mystery of his presence is really revealed. You learn it. Christ is in you. The centerpiece of the universe has chosen a personal position in you. Jesus promised it. John chapter 14, verse 16 and verse 20. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Verse 20. On that day you'll realize that I'm in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? He's writing in the plural, or he's talking to the church. That God's Spirit dwells in your midst. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes, and I no longer live, but Christ, he lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where we're going in this series, this letter. We're attempting to understand the greatest Christian mystery. Searching to unfold this as we consider this letter, how is it that Christ actually lives in his people? There are all kinds of folks who know how to make a statement of faith. There are all kinds of folks how to make a, a conscious choice to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The mystery is learning to walk in the presence of Jesus Christ Christ in you. That's the mystery. Especially in the midst of a place so filled with lies. Let's bow together as we pray. Heavenly Father, the mystery of your truth comes upon us through your word, revealing to us with clarity that your power is present. Your supernatural invasion on our lives, it steps into every single day, willing to live in us. Open that mystery to us, Lord. Bring us fresh truth to know what that means by our own experience. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.